we're going to be talking about carnal Christianity today. And uh, the question I always get is, what the heck does carnal mean? Um, so we'll get into that. But I, I, uh, I guess I'll preface everything by saying, if anybody doesn't know who Chuck Missler is or was, because he's with the Lord now, he, uh, uh, when he preached on, on 1 Corinthians, he, he always had the joke. He would always start out by saying, we're going to be in Paul's first epistle to the Californians today because that was the state of affairs in Corinth, um, a libertine society that was uh, driven by, by the world so much. Um, and my, my personal example of this is that uh, when the day that Landon asked me to teach today, um, I remember he had, uh, I was sitting in the back, he had Brother James and I believe um, Ozzy, come up to say something and inside I'm just like well he didn't ask me he didn't ask me to do that quiet yeah and then afterwards I was humbled and he says asked me so uh, I'm gonna be away in a few weeks do you want to teach I'm like oh thanks God like way to show how prideful I am but that's that's the nature of of each of us is uh, pride, is uh, thinking about ourselves, and the mes- message of Christ and the message of Paul here is to remind us that that may be our natural state, but it's not who we are. So, Landon's grace in allowing me to teach, which I believe that he is very gracious. He all was also gracious in not preaching. Too, uh, too much on the last three verses of chapter three just because I happened to mention it to him one day. <laughs> and uh, so he's allowed me to, to talk about that too, which I'm grateful for because there's so much um, in these seven verses that we're going to go over. So for the next um, three hours, uh, we're going to be in seven verses. Um, I'm going to pray really quick. Lord, uh, you've, you've blessed us all um, with mercies and grace and love. And uh, I'm honored to be here today. And I'm sure that my brothers and sisters are as well. And so we, we just ask for your spirit to move as I know that it already is because you've just reaffirmed um, so much to us, um, so much to me personally this morning and already. And so I just ask that you bless the time that we have right now and that you make hearts soft and receptive to your word. And I just pray that uh, it is not me speaking the words in my feeble, finite mind, but that it's you speaking through me. And um, I just want you to be glorified and honored. So help us all to glorify and honor you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. So there's three main parts I'm going to be going through. Um, we start today with, with establishing some kind of foundation because what Paul's been talking about so far in, in the book of Corinthians is um, reminding them by way of the gospel uh, what he preached to them, reminding them who they are. He hasn't quite gotten to the point of calling them out. And so through this building of foundation, um, the first two chapters, and culminating with, I, I believe, the very final verse in chapter 2, verse 16, um, 
he sets himself up to level the accusation that they are carnal people, despite being saved. And so that first thing that he's, well, I should say the final thing that he's, he's laying is, is a differentiation between two things. Um, we're going to go back to geometry class right now, because you guys remember in geometry class when, when you defined shapes, like there was a definition to a shape. So like a square was defined as a plane figure with four congruent sides and four right angles, right? That's how we know a square is a square. If, if the right angles aren't there, it's not a square, right? If there's only one right angle there, it's not a square. So uh, we define a square and we know what a rectangle is. It's also a plane figure, uh, four-sided and opposing sides are not only congruent and parallel, um, but they also have four angles. Now, if you think about it just briefly, you're like, well, yeah, they're similar, right? But there's a difference there. What's the difference? Yeah, the congruency of the sides. There's equalness in a square. But, but, by definition, wouldn't a square be a rectangle? Yeah. So, is the opposite true? Is a rectangle, can it be considered a square? No, it can't. It can't. <laughs> Thank you. Did you say you're a math teacher? No. Oh, okay. Well, that's kind of a teacher. <laughs> if you share it with other people. <laughs> um, so, we have, we have two objects. They're very similar. They can maybe sometimes be confused, especially if the rectangle is kind of a short, stubby rectangle, you know. It could be confused as a square. So my point in saying this is that some, one thing, by definition, could be classified as something else. But there's still a distinction to be made. Uh, the same is true with, with sheep and goats. Jesus uses that example in... in uh, in his teaching that there's a difference between sheep and goats. Sheep and goats have a lot of similarities. But when you look at a sheep and you look at a goat, you can tell they're two different animals, right? Very different. Um, and he reminds us that he will separate sheep and goats at one point. Um, we're going to read uh, the last three verses of First Corinthians 2 right now and kind of get more into this. <clears throat> Paul writes in verse 14, the natural, I'm reading by the e, in the ESV, by the way. Sorry, James, wherever you are. Where are you? There he is. He's the short guy. I love him. He's my gospel dad. <laughs> All right. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The word uh, natural, um, I believe the KJV states carnal, is... Uh, by the way, I'm going to do five Greek words today. We're going to learn a little bit. I try to limit this. I like the word studies, and, but I try to limit it because I know some people don't like that. But here's the first Greek word. This, this word here for natural 
is sukakos. And that's where we get our word psyche from. So you think of the modern definition of, of psyche or psychology, and it's, it's uh, having to do with a mind, right? What Paul's saying here is that this person does not have the same mind. He's talking about a natural man, the natural state of man. And the natural state of man is sin. There, there's no two ways about it. It's sin. So when, when he's saying that the things that are spiritual are folly to him, he's saying that he's existing solely, merely in the physical being. And anybody that, that um, is unsaved, anybody that is, is not found in Christ can only sin. That is their only thing that they can do is sin. There can be good works. There can be good that is done. But do you know that God calls us into relationship with him? And if that person is doing good works but is not found in relationship with him, that person is sinning. Hmm. So what Paul's doing here is he's linking this natural state of mankind to all of creation. We are all created beings. We all exist in the same state naturally. Um, so there, there, think about that connection that we have. All the animals in the world, all the, even the plants and trees, there's nothing, the natural state of things right now, ever since the fall, has been sin. There's nothing but an urge to be filled. We know that in Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon writes that the flesh is empty and it wants to be filled, but nothing will fill it. It just wants more and more and more. And I can attest to that in my own life in the past. Um, the next uh, word I want to go over is uh, where he writes spirit, spiritual, the spiritual man. That, that word is pneumaticos. So a lot of times in, in uh, the New Testament when we're reading about the spirit, it is that word pneuma or pneumaticos. Um, it's talking about the state of something. Anytime a Greek word ends in kos or koi, it, it means the state of something. So what Paul's saying here about the spiritual man as he's setting up a difference between the two. And this spirituality is what sets us apart from our natural state. And it's also what makes us akin to God. Uh, the Bible teaches that God is spirit, and it is our only connection to him, other than the fact that Jesus Christ was a man born akin to us, which connects the manhood with us, uh, which makes it all that much more amazing that he was perfect in all of his ways because he existed in a, a fleshly, uh, finite body contained in rags, and yet he still was sinless, was perfect. Paul's saying that there's something more noble than just flesh, that there is a higher calling, and that that calling uh, was found in spirituality, 
and not just some hippy dippy Eastern philosophy, spirituality, New Ageism. No, th this is a real spirituality. This is a real connection to something other than us. And I talked, uh, this is one example of how this connects with what I talked about in First Peter 2, that there is something other above, and that is God himself. So the Spirit is the way that we connect to the Lord. Um on his terms. So this, uh, this battle between carnality and spirituality, in verse 15 he says that, <clears throat> that the spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. So here, here we have the square and rectangle principle kind of applied a bit. So the square can be considered the spiritual person. The rectangle can be considered the natural person, but a square can be defined as a rectangle, right? It has the same properties, same characteristics. What Paul's saying is that the natural person has no other basis which to judge life, to live life, to discern life, to consider life than his natural state of affairs, and that is so often uh, manifested in sinful behavior. The spiritual person has all of that too. They're capable of it. We're still in the flesh, right? But because they are spiritual, there is a nobler cause. There is a, a, a more noble call. They, they are raised to a different platform than the natural man. They can discern things of the spirit that the natural man has no ability to do so. This, this word judges or judged is the Greek word anakrino. Um, it means to scrutinize and investigate, to interrogate, determine, examine. This is, this is an intense word. Ana literally means intense. Uh, crino means to distinguish or, or decide or judge. Th these, are, these are, I think of like when uh, Hebrews talks about Abraham and, and how when God told him the promise that he had for him and Abraham was, was like pondering these things, it wasn't just like, hmm, yeah, I think I'll do that. No, he wrestled with it. He he really battled himself and, and tried to learn about what these promises were and came to the acceptance of it by saying, you know what, God? You've proven yourself already. There's no reason why I can't trust you in this too. Even though I'm 100 years old and you're saying I'm going to have a kid soon, I'm going to trust you. This is the same type of discernment that, that Paul's saying that the spiritual man has, that we, we, do not, we as spiritual people do not need to be uh, beholden to natural things, even though those things are below us, even though we can understand those things, right? We, can't, we may not understand all those things. There's lots of, uh, you like to teach math, or you like math, right? I, math, I was an engineer for like 14 years, and I, math is still like, ugh, right? <laughs> but... But there's things that we don't understand in the natural world, but that's not to say that the natural world is something else, right? We exist as a natural man. We're able to understand these natural things if God allows us to. But the natural man cannot understand the spiritual things. He cannot. That's a privilege that we have as, as born-again believers. I, I feel like I'm repeating myself a lot, and I'm sure that you guys think so, but this is an important point to get across, is, is that P 
Paul, Paul is summarizing all of chapters one and two here, especially chapter two, um, with, with three simple verses. And um, just as I was uh, preparing, like this, this kind of thought came to my head. Um, so I'll just restate it once more. The spiritual man, because he is inherently natural, has all natural, physical, mental, psychological, and worldly things under them. He is therefore able to severely and intensely scrutinize, assess, discern, consider, and decide upon any facet of natural life. But because he is spiritual, can do the same with natural matters. In contrast, the one who is merely natural, despite having the same ability with natural things, does not share the spiritual man's ability to do the same with spiritual things. To paraphrase, spiritual things are spiritually discerned. You can't use natural means to discern the spirit. It's not possible. That's what Paul's saying here. He wraps this up in verse 16 by saying, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Um, Paul quotes uh, Isaiah 40, 13 here. I want to read that, and I, I want to expand on it because I think there's some context here that, that could be lost with just saying one sentence. So in Isaiah 40, I'm going to read from uh, verse 10 through 14. Isaiah writes, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? That's a powerful passage. I think of Job when Job was like at the end of that whole thing and God finally steps in and asserts himself and asserts himself and says, did you store up the snow in the storehouses? Did you, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who are you, Job? In the same way, Isaiah's writing the same thing. Who are you? God measured the heavens in a span. Like that. <laughs> Done. Who are you? This passage quotes the greatness of our God and his sovereignty. There's nobody above him. Who exists, who can we even fathom could exist that has done these things? Nobody but him. So he quotes this to show us something. And I also want to say, this passage in, in Isaiah is in the context of salvation. You hear in verse 10 and 11 where he says that he's going to tend to his flock and he gathers the lambs in his arms. He's calling us to himself. This is salvation, guys. 
So in the context of salvation, Paul quotes this, saying, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? We're dealing with the gospel here. If the gospel message is salvation, and this passage is talking about salvation, Paul, Paul talks about salvation in the beginning of chapter 2 when he, when he talks about um, him not coming with lofty speech and elegance and wisdom. No, he just came preaching Christ crucified. That's it. Nothing else. So even in his own context, this is why I believe that he's, he's referencing Isaiah in the context of salvation, because even in his own context, he's talking about salvation and how he came and brought it to the Corinthians and taught them the simple truth, Christ crucified, and what that means for each of us. <clears throat> so who are we to dictate the gospel to God? I, I, don't, I don't think we stand at all. His message is best dictated by himself. And thank him for doing it through Jesus because that is the only way. All of creation points to that. All of his word points to that. And I think it's inherent here, and it's important to mention that if we, if we try to dictate God's message to him or to anybody else without his help, we're changing the gospel. There's inherent danger there. I'm going to allude to, to three points that I'm going to bring up in a little bit. Um, when we change the gospel, there's, there's three major ways that we change it. I think all, all the other ways kind of fit underneath these three things. The first one is, is uh, legalism. Legalistic behavior, legalistic thinking. The next one is false teaching. We can distort and pervert and disrupt the gospel by adding things to it, by taking things away from it and not just letting it be. I love what Landon said the other week about just plainly speaking God's word. I think we need to do more of that. The last one's complacency. When we take a step back and we sit down and feel like we've done something, we've done enough. The heart of this issue is what the gospel is and how it's being told to others. That's something that the Corinthians missed out on. Even with Paul's teaching, um, even, even the 18 months that Paul spent in Corinth teaching him, teaching them about, uh, about Jesus, plainly speaking the gospel message, they lost sight of it. We'll come back to that in a bit too. Um, I love how he wraps this up, but we have the mind of Christ. And this is the linchpin that connects all of what he was just saying to chapter 3 and, and on so, because he doesn't, he levels this accusation coming up, but it, he doesn't stop there. There, there, was, there was a lot of sin going on in the Corinthian church. They, they, were, they were acting wickedly. And uh, we see that a lot. I'm reminded a lot of, of Old Testament where, um, like Ezekiel, and uh, I believe it was chapter 20, talks about how they were setting up things um, in the temple, like next to God. Like they had, the, they made their own little idols out of metal or wood or whatever, and they set them up next to God. And God tells Ezekiel, "You need to tell these people that's wicked." And that's essentially what the Corinthians were doing. They were setting other things next to God. Um. So anyway, that was a little digression. Um, the uh, the thing I like about this is that 
we can't we can't instruct the Lord in his own message, right? But we have the mind of Christ. At face value, it seems like they're juxtaposed, you know, like they're they're against one another. But that's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying that he's not bringing up like some conundrum here. He's saying we have the mind of Christ. These things, we go back here. If we, if, if we exist naturally, but we who are spiritual also exist spiritually, and we're able to discern all of these things, we're able to discern all of these things, and nobody can judge us because we're spiritual people. They can't judge and discern the spirit of us who are spiritual. We can't instruct the Lord <laughs> on anything we can't dictate his own message but we have the mind of christ paul concludes this with this statement because we are not natural men we may be still be in the flesh or fleshly which this is uh the next part that i'm going to get into and and why why his uh the words that he uses is so important to understand he he's saying that we're not solely merely natural men we are spiritual we as spiritual people have the mind of christ as part of that gift like this is one reason why joe i what joe said that the the gifts of god given to us he wants to lavish us abundantly all the spiritual gifts are, are ours to for the taking he wants to give them all we have the mind of christ that's a spiritual gift what this is getting to is the state between saved and unsaved. Sheep and goats. That's what we're talking about here. That's what these three little verses are alluding to, what, what he's differentiating. Do you guys know what it means to be born again? What does it mean? Are you yourself? dead you're dead the flesh is dead the spirit comes alive right so it means that you are no longer your old self you're dead if you were found in christ you went into the tomb with him you were, you were hung on the cross first with him right you, your body went into the tomb and you were resurrected spiritually speaking into a new life the work's finished and final it's done. That part of it's done. There's no going back. There's no trying to do it again. It's done. It's been done for 2,000 years. It's been done. And you are now different, as different from your old self as a sheep is from a goat. You're not a goat anymore. You're a sheep. So... You see how the sheep and goat thing, the square and rectangle thing, how, how they all kind of correlate around this idea that, that the old man has passed away, the new has come. Behold, behold, the new has come. We are not the people we once were. There's a difference between the natural and the spiritual. I think I've, <laughs> I have it in my nose again. I'm just gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna beat the dead horse. This is, this is what, uh, this is what it's all about. We have the mind of Christ, not to be spiritual dictators. We're not, we're not, we're not called uh, to have the mind of Christ so that we can walk around. Bruce mentioned this morning during prayer about, about the, the tendency to become judgmental. 
and and to uh, ignore the, the the log in your eyes so you can point out somebody else's speck. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not calling us to to uh, a dictatorship of oh well I'm holier than you. That's not what he's saying. He's he's calling us into something higher, something greater. And the the idea of Christ's mind is to convey the idea that spiritual things are deep and revealing. Just like I mentioned about Abraham, really pondering and thinking intensely and severely about the things that God was promising to him. This is what we're to be dwelling on, is, is the revelation and the deepness of who our God is. And, and, and that it contrasts uh, mindless mysticism. This isn't some mystical thing that... that I mean, there's, there's some churches in the world that believe that mysticism is the way to, to God. It's not true. It's not true. That's a false teaching. We don't, we don't need to enter into some uh, uh, trance state to, to attain what God has for us. He did that through Jesus. We don't have to um, we don't have to conjure up things in our mind that that aren't connected to other things. A lot, a lot of people will, will want to um, will want to go with some thought that's in their brain and say, "Oh, well, that must be truth. I've I've uh, I've thought it up," as if there's no reference point, there's no absolute. It's not mindless, guys. This is a purpose. Paul's saying that we've been called to. The mind of Christ is a purpose. The salvation of the world, which was hidden for millennia, was revealed in Jesus himself. And as servants of his, abiding in his spirit, we can say we have and represent his mind, just as an ambassador of a king could say they represent and speak for him. Um, many of you might not know, I live in James's house with my wife and seven kids. <laughs> and uh, my, my clothes are stored in James's old closet where he used to store his clothes, <laughs> which is kind of, kind of surreal sometimes because um, I, I don't deserve any of that. And James, like God worked a lot through James and James has been a, a good brother to me. Um, but he... In his closet, there's this um, printed out page that has Luke 10, 23 to 24 on it. And uh, it was there, I don't know how long it's been there, James. How long has it been there? Many years. Well, it's still there now. I, I haven't taken it down. And uh, so my clothes are all around. And it's just like on the wall right there in the closet. Um, and what, what Luke 10, 23, 24 says is... Um, Jesus, Jesus is here again, as he always is. Uh, Jesus turned to the disciples he's, and he said privately, nobody else heard this, just his disciples. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. That's a good verse to keep in mind. Because there were people searching for the meaning of life, for purpose, for, for God himself, for thousands of years. He foreshadowed himself to the prophets. He gave 
uh, news of himself to certain people, but was he revealed? He even told Moses. When you, could you imagine Moses seeing like the, the pillar of flame and smoke and, and thinking, and all of Israel really, and thinking, whoa, dude, this is, that's trippy. Like, this is God. But do you know that when Moses asked for God's glory, like he just wanted to see God's glory, what did, what did God show him? <laughs> I, I always laugh at that. I'm like, whoa, Moses, Moses, uh, maybe that's why he was the meekest man in the world because God, God kept showing him repeatedly how worthless he was without him. Your reminder after reminder of, of uh, like, show me yourself, God. Show me yourself. And like, <laughs> that's just funny to me. <laughs> Thanks, Gretchen. But all of that, all, all these people are searching, searching, searching. It wasn't revealed to them. Who was it revealed to? Common man. Who is us? Us. Guys, we live in an age right now where we may not have existed when Jesus physically walked on this earth, but we have the history, the foundation of all the saints that we can rely upon, the testimony of witnesses, a great cloud of them as Hebrews says, that we can rely upon and look at the glory of Christ. He's been revealed dramatically more so than he ever was before. We have that privilege. I want to wrap up the last few verses of um, 2 Corinthians with, uh, oh, where am I? Thanks, Bruce. <laughs> um, actually, Romans 8, 5 through 8, just to kind of drive this point home for a final time. Um, Romans five, uh, 8, 5 through 8, Paul writes and says, For those who live according to flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, his principles, his concepts, his precepts. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's what he's saying in these final three verses of chapter two. How, if we have the mind of Christ, are we hostile to, toward, towards God? How can we? We have the mind of Christ, people. This is about salvation. God's word, and this is a, this is a profound concept. I, I brought this up to, um, to my wife uh, this past week. This is a profound concept, and I, I really searched it out and before I said anything to her about this, but I'm including it here because I think this is, I think this is profound truth. God's word deals primarily with the saved. God's word deals primarily with the saved. If you're unsaved, if you know his messages and his word, get saved. And how, does, how do they do that? How do, how, how do you get saved? Anybody? 
accepting Jesus. We, we like to give like, um, like those small little platitudes like that to, to that concept. Oh, just accept Jesus into your heart. Just accept him, right? But what does God's word say? Like specifically, do what he says. Can I, can I share scripture? This is really, really stupidly simple. This is one that, that I had my own kids memorize because of how important it is to understand this concept. Romans 10, 9 and 10. For with the mind one conf- with the mouth one confesses unto righteousness. Right? I'm sorry. Let me back up. I'm horrible at memorizing things. If you believe, let me try that one more time. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe that God, anybody join me, rose him from the dead, right? He raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness with the mouth, one confesses unto salvation. Is that not stupidly simple? That's what you do. That's what you say. That's what you believe in your heart. Simply that. And God tells us, if you do that, simply that, you are saved. What, what are the religions of the world teaching us? Works. Thank you. Works. What do you have to do to, to uh, make it to heaven in Islam? No idea. I don't know. I don't know what they teach. What do they teach? That, that, you, that you have to do works. Maybe. I don't know. You have to honor God through your works to him in order to get to him. Impossible. It's a chasm. I, one, of my, one of my favorites, I'm going to quote him in just a minute here, but Jack Abelin, I don't know if you guys know him. He's from California. He, he was under Chuck Smith for a long time. And uh, he, I, I relay this to my kids a while back, but uh, getting, getting to God through works is like uh, an island that's 20 miles out in the ocean and you running down the dock and you try to jump towards it and get there. Are you ever going to get there? No. I wouldn't swim 20 miles in an ocean. I would drown. That's the chasm between us and God. I, even, even if me, five foot nine, dad bod, <laughs> running off the dock, as far as I can jump, I'm not getting there. But you know what? The best long jumper in the world that can jump 25 feet, not close. Not close at all. It's not about works. And we'll see that again in a bit, too. That's what you do to get saved, people. You confess it with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's, there's power there. God raised him from the dead. Do you know anybody that's been raised from the dead? Lazarus. Who did that? Jesus. There was that guy with Elisha, though. You guys remember that story? This is a sidetrack. 
the <laughs> Elisha died and his bones were in the grave and they there's another guy that died after him so they threw his bo- his body into the same grave grave as Elisha because the army's coming they're like we got to bury this guy quick and they throw him in the grave and as soon as he touched Elisha's bones he like jumped up and was like oh, I'm alive <laughs> that's crazy but but Elisha had a double portion from Elijah right yeah, yeah. God God worked like maybe that was like the final little bit of that double portion it's just I don't know. But God did it. God did it. The, the act of raising from the dead is a, an insane concept. You, you, people don't do that. That's why it's so hard to believe. People don't do that. This guy was dead. He was pierced with a the, with the spear. <laughs> he died before the other two guys that were hung with him. And they put him in the grave. Pilate saw his body. Pilate had the body. He saw it. He verified it was dead, and he went in the tomb. And still, three days later, posted the guard, everything, big old boulder in front, did everything. Jesus wasn't there. There's power. And Landon texted me this morning and just referenced the, the name of Jesus, the power in his name. Do you know, before I was a Christian, when I was praying around like I was a Christian, thinking I was saved and I wasn't, I couldn't even speak the name of Jesus. I couldn't. No. Because there's power there. You, you might, you can say it as a cuss word. You can use his name in vain all you want. But if you really deal with his name and, and the power that, that it has, that's a turn off, man. That, puts, that put me off for a long time. I couldn't even say his name. There's power in confession that he is Lord, recognizing his authority over your life. Lord of Lord, King of Kings. There's power in realizing his resurrection. So, if you're unsaved, get saved. Stupidly simple, right? But if you're saved, what does, what, say it again, Bruce. I have that written here. Did you read my notes? <laughs> <laughs> Act like it. The primary purpose of God's word, if it's for primarily for the believer, for the saved, is for purity. He keeps coming back and ba- back to that again and again and again. All through the Old Testament, every time we were going through the book of Judges with uh, my two kids and for uh, I don't know, a couple months and What's the common theme of judges? They did what was right in their own eyes over and over again, right? They weren't keeping themselves pure. God set them apart. An entire nation of people, he set them apart. They're not keeping themselves pure. He even told them, be holy for I am holy. He reminded them what their outcome was to be. You're going to be holy like I am. I'm calling you into that. You can be like me. Put your trust in me. Put your hope in me. I will make you holy. There's another great point that Joe brought up earlier. Sanctification. When you're looking at people that are unsaved and people that are saved, it comes down to two things. Justification, sanctification. There's a difference between the two. Jack Abelan said, justification delivers you from the penalty of sin, but sanctification delivers you from the power of sin. 
So for the unsaved, here's how you're justified for the God of the universe. How do you how do you get justified? We be saved. How are we saved? Exactly. Stupidly simple. But these are this is foolishness to the world, right? It's foolishness. It can really be that simple. I heard stories of Jeffrey Dahmer while he was in prison that he became born again. A guy that did despicable, unspeakable things. And if it's true, praise God. But you know what the you know what the media was saying when they heard that? After he he it came out? If God is gonna let a guy like him into heaven, that's no God at all. It can't be that simple. Guess what? It is. All. He's not willing that any would perish, but that everyone would have eternal life. What you're doing when you're confessing and believing with your mouth and your heart is that you're focusing on the works of Christ. The works of Christ were that he was born into this world as a man. God became man, became flesh. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He was unjustly executed on a Roman execution rack. Tortured beforehand. Killed brutally. And he was put into a tomb only to raise again, alive. That's the works of Christ. That's what we rely on. Christ said he came and he preached Christ crucified. That's what he means. He preached this same message I'm saying right now to the Corinthians. For the saved, here's how you're sanctified. Ephesians 1, 13-14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So remember when Landon was in um, Exodus the other week talking about uh, uh, Moses being put in a little basket and they sealed it with bitumen or pitch or whatever? And, and Elan is relating it to the ark, Noah's ark, right? And, and these things were preserved here. Did you know also, I learned this this past week, this is crazy. You know the word there that's you in, in Noah's story that's used for pitch that he sealed the ark with is also the same exact word for some translations say bitumen or pitch, tar, something, is the same word in, in Exodus about Moses' basket, Right? Only two times in the whole Bible that word's mentioned. Only two times. What that's indicative of is the Holy Spirit sealing. We are sealed, guys. The, the, our hearts, when they are, when they are, our hearts of stone are taken out and replaced with the heart of flesh because that's what God does to us when, when we're born again. He seals that with pitch and bitumen. The Holy Spirit seals us. We are his. Nobody can snatch us out of his hand. We're his. The salvation concerns every aspect of the triune God. 
I'm going to, this might seem like a bit of a digression here. And I know I'm not even in chapter three yet, but uh, I feel that this is important. I, I read this in Warren Wearsby um, in one of his books. And, and I thought this was amazing. Salvation as it concerns each of the persons of the triune God. To God the Father, we were saved when he chose us, each of us, in Christ before the foundations of the world. As far as God the Father is concerned, you were saved when he laid the foundations of the world. He knew you would choose him. That's Ephesians 1.4. As far as Jesus himself is concerned, we were saved the day we put our trust and hope in him and confessed and believed in his works, as Romans 9, or 10, 9, and 10 again. For me, that was an Outagamie County jail cell. May 14, 2018. Do you know how I know that I was saved at that point and not before? Because before, I couldn't even come up with, with a scenario of where I would have been put in the position to confess Jesus and to believe that God raised him from the dead. Never could imagine it. It didn't exist. It didn't happen. Each of you are going to have, if you are saved, each of you are going to have, you don't have to have a date. It's not about the date. It's about that, that memory of connection with God for the first time. It's about you confessing with your mouth that he is king of your life and believing that God did the miraculous of raising him from the dead. But with the Spirit, the matters of salvation goes beyond both of those things. Remember, he's the helper, he's the advocate that Christ promised us when, when uh, right before his death, right? He promised the disciples a helper. There's a lot of verses here, and a, the great thing is a lot of these are in 1 Corinthians, so I'm not even going to read through any of these. I'm going to state the verses afterwards because in, over the next few months, Landon's going to go through all of them anyway if he hasn't already. So there are four things that the Spirit does. He indwells us. That's 1 Corinthians 2.12, 1 Corinthians 6.19, 1 Corinthians 12.13, Ephesians 1.13-14, which we just read, John 14.16. You can look them up. I'll give them my notes to you after this. You can look them up and read it for yourself. He indwells us. As soon as we are saved, the Spirit comes in, seals us permanently. Just like Noah sealed the ark, just like Moses' mother sealed his little basket. Second thing is, he searches us. That's called conviction. He will figure out every little thing. He already knows it. He doesn't have to figure it out. But he will pull it out of us and slap it down in front of us and say, so what about this, Wes? What about your pride, Wes, for not being called up to read a simple passage? <laughs> That's 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11. Third thing is he teaches us. You know that every word of God is God-breathed, right? Every single word. And it, do, it promises not to return void. We can read anywhere in here, and it's connected to anything else in here. It's perfect. I never realized that before I was a Christian. It was just a book. But Landon said, like Landon said a couple weeks ago, isn't it amazing 
when your spiritual eyes are opened and you have the mind of Christ, what his word says, what it means, how it's connected to each and every aspect of our lives, it teaches us. 1 Corinthians 2.13, John 14.26, John 16.13, John 17.8. And lastly, and I think, if not most importantly, uh, more uh, poignantly here, pointedly maybe, it matures us. That's the process of sanctification. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16, which we just read, which we've been focused on. The necessity of, of these three verses is that Paul's establishing his argument against the Corinthians so that he can show them their natural selves, their carnality, despite being saved. The Corinthians have been justified. Bruce read this morning 1 Corinthians uh, 1, right? To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints together with all those who in every place. I don't even think they're saved people. He's dealing with saved people. But just because they're justified doesn't mean that they are in agreement to be sanctified. They're actually absolutely flat out refusing. They are caught up with their sin, with living in the flesh. I'm going to reiterate those three things that, that prevent us from being sanctified. That is legalism, false teaching, complacency. I really believe all the other things can fit under those three headings in our lives that take us away from God. And you know what the result is? Stalled spiritual maturity. Loss of victory. We talk about the, the song that Steve and the rest of them sang this morning. Death was arrested and my life began. It just began, people. It just began at that point. There's victory. If we're not being sanctified, we don't claim that victory. Last one, succumbing to the flesh. <clears throat> Sin will inhabit us more and more. It's a slippery slope. All right. Here's what we've all been waiting for. The actual passage I'm supposed to be teaching on. Um, four verses. Chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. Ooh but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? First thing I want to note is that he calls them brothers, brethren. Again, these are saved people. They're in Christ's family. Nowhere in the prophets, when they were rebuking Israel for hundreds of years, did any of the prophets ever call their countrymen 
brethren, brothers. Never. Despite, or in the midst of all of their wickedness, they were never referred to as the prophet's kin. But here, Paul says brothers. Even though he just rebuked them for being sinful people. These are sheep. They've confessed. They've believed. These are sheep. They're not goats. And Paul's addressing them as such. But, as, uh, as God reminds us, sheep are prone to wander. And these are wandering sheep. There's hope. Eternally. Eternally hope. Um, last two Greek words. I'm done with Greek words then. When in verse one, when he says that he addressed them as spiritual people and not as people of the flesh, the word there for flesh is sarkinos, means made of flesh. Are we not all made of flesh? I'm made of flesh. I'm I'm made of flesh. By nature, we're all made of flesh, just like the natural man. Before we knew Jesus, we were made of flesh, right? We're still made of flesh. And unfortunately, this stuff isn't going to go away until Jesus comes back, right? And we, and we see the fulfillment of all of it. It's inescapable. We can't get rid of this stuff. And that alludes to the battle that we face every single day. There is always going to be opportunity for sin in our lives as long as we remain in this flesh. The other Greek word, which is in... Um, verse 3 and 4, actually. It's used in both of those. When he says merely human or for you are still of the flesh, verse 3, it's a different word, related but different. That is sarkikos. So we have sarkinos, made of flesh, and sarkikos, which means dominated by the flesh. This is beyond just being made of flesh. It means that you're being mastered by it. And that, to me, conjures up what God told Cain Remember when, when he's, his offering was rejected by the Lord and he goes off grumbling and God says, King, what are you doing? Do you not know that sin is crouching at the door? You either have to master it or it's going to master you. So Paul's leveling blame at the Corinthians for this very thing for their failure to accept their own victory in Jesus Christ, who they already confessed, who they already believed, they're failing to accept the victory, to realize it, and to submit to the Holy Spirit which has sealed them. They're living as if they were unsaved. And that sarkikos, that domination of the flesh, by the flesh, is manifested in Corinth in a few different ways. It's easy to get kind of confused because he's talking, if you just read it at face value, he's talking about, oh, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, right? And he references this once before, too. That's, that's just a symptom, guys. 
That's just a symptom of their sinfulness, of their, of their sarkikos, of their domination by the, the flesh. Division, rivalry, dissension, strife, envy. All those things are the result of being dominated by the flesh, and that was how it was being manifested. I think it was interesting. I read um, a quote from Matthew Henry. Um, if, you've, if you need a commentary, a pretty decent general commentary, Matthew Henry's is pretty good. Everything I've read out there is solid. Henry said, It is but too common for persons of very moderate knowledge and understanding to have a great measure of self-conceit. Yeah. It is but too common for persons of very moderate knowledge and understanding to have a very great measure of self-deceit, self-conceit. Paul, Paul was referencing the Corinthians and how he came and preached this simple, plain message of Christ crucified. And what did they do with it? For 18 months, he spent in Corinth teaching them this message. What, what did they do with it? They took it and they perverted it and they chose to follow a couple other people. Even Paul, coming in Paul's name, saying, Oh, well, you can't be real. You haven't followed Paul's teaching. What do you mean? I didn't follow Paul's teaching. I was following Apollos. He was preaching the truth. So they took the gospel and perverted it. Made it about men. And then divided themselves over it. They were competing with one another. They were calling each other out. It created strife and envy in them. Their baby steps into their own rebirth were taken conceitedly. They made it about themselves. And that resulted in the breakdown of spiritual discernment. Even the works of spiritual men can be misappropriated by fleshly men to create division and strife. This is why they weren't able to eat the meat. They, they weren't capable. They made it about a ton of other things. And why Paul kept coming back to that simple message of Christ crucified to try to get through to them, that simple milk. The Corinthians are wandering sheep. We're wandering sheep. And I think that a lot of us might be considered wandering sheep. We've been justified and sealed in the spirit, but we're led astray from the shepherd, acting like we're goats again. That's what the Corinthians were doing. What this, happened, what this does is it dethrones Jesus as king. Billy Graham said, if you as a Christian are overcome by the enemy, the simple explanation is that Christ has been denied his rightful position of supremacy in your heart. The dethronement of Christ will always lead to a failure in spiritual warfare. It is Christ and Christ alone who can give you a constant daily victorious life. Reminds me of Israel in the wilderness in the book of Numbers. First, there was failure to act faithfully in entering the promised land. They said, no, there are giants over there. I'm not going in there. So then that led them to having consequences, being turned back into the wilderness. And to try to get out of the wilderness, they immediately said, okay, we're going to do it ourselves. We'll prove you wrong, God. And what happened? They got their butts kicked. 
further disobedience, which led to more suffering unnecessarily in the wilderness and the loss of a full blessing of God. Those people didn't inherit the promised land their, their, ancestors, or their, their children did. It also reminds me of Saul and the Amalekites. Um, God says to go up and defeat the Amalekites, and so he does, but he doesn't offer them all to destruction. He spares the king, Agag, right? And he takes some of their, their choice animals in order to sacrifice. And then when Samuel confronts him about it, he's like, oh, we were doing this for God. No, you weren't. He told you to kill them all. You saved the king. Because of that, Saul lost his throne. His anointment was taken away. And from that point on, it was about David. So, this is a symbol of how we allow sin in our lives when we're sealed, when we're anointed by the Lord. We allow sin in our lives to take root. It might be three hours, I don't know. <laughs> I'll speed it up. We're going to skip over that part. There's another uh, triune that exists in the world, and that's the unholy one. Maybe you've heard it said, Satan, the world, the flesh, united against us, united against the Lord. And these are dangers for the flock. Um, because they lead us astray. There's an image. I'm going to get into those three things that I told you about, and then we'll be done. There's an image of abiding I want you guys to, to keep in mind. One of two. Abiding. This is what it really comes down to, is abiding in the Lord. Abiding in His Spirit. A hike up a mountain. There's a second one. A prison cell, which Christ has set us free from. So, I'm going to read very, very quickly. I want you to listen for a couple things. Um, listen for how these things relate to what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians, and listen for uh, how these three things, legalism, false teaching, complacency, intertwine themselves, just like the unholy triune of Satan, the world, and the flesh do. Okay. The first is Galatians 5. I guess I'm going to read really quickly. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. 
Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking about making a practice of them. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is legalism. The Galatians were filled with legalism. They wanted to keep the law, all the circumcision. They wanted to keep. They were, they were telling other people, this is what you have to do to be saved. You have to circumcise yourself. Paul said, no, no, Christ, Jesus crucified on the cross. That's how you're saved. Legalism says, I can blaze my own trail up that mountain. This also leads to you being blown around by every wave and wind of doctrine. Everything that comes your way, whether you want to, uh, you think that God can't even hear you unless you speak his language. That's legalism. You're substituting something else in place of Jesus. It means Jesus plus other things. Oh, I just need to say this prayer. That's how I get to heaven. No. You're in the, the aspect of a, the prison cell that Christ set you free from. This is like you constructing a second prison cell right outside that door and you walking into it. It may be decorated and all nice and fluffy and luxurious, but you know what? You're still in prison. How do you overcome? Paul says it pretty plainly. I'm going to put it in a paraphrase. By letting the Spirit do its thing. You need to allow it to indwell you. You need to let it search you and convict you. You need to let it teach you. And you need to let it mature you. Christ already pioneered our faith. He already made that path up that mountain for us. All we have to do is walk it the same way he did. That's in faith. No other work is needed or necessary. Second one, false teaching. I'm going to go to Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Remember, listen to the commonality in all these. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, 
compassion. I love what the way KJV writes it. Inordinate affection. Think about that one. Evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked. They were natural men. When you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, holiness. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, or long-suffering, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord is forgiving you, you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts and to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. False teaching says, what the Colossians were struggling with was all their people coming in. First, uh, the first chapter of Colossians deals with the, the preeminence of Christ. That means he's above everything. And these false teachers were coming in saying, hey, um, actually, Jesus wasn't God. That's wrong. Jesus is God. So what false teaching says is, I can take another path up the mountain that was already blazed. The problem is, it's always a dead end. And half the time it cliffs out and you fall off. It challenges Christ's supremacy and preeminence. This is why Second Peter and Jude, they're so similar as one another. Every, they say every false teaching is rooted in sensuality. It makes you feel good. It's about pleasure. It's about stroke, the stroking of the natural man, whatever way that manifests in each of your lives. It dethrones Christ. Remember the passage from Billy Graham. It dethrones Christ, and that's when sin comes in. In the image of, of that prison, you're being led from that prison that Christ set you free from into a second prison cell. Somebody, the false teacher, is leading you into another prison cell telling you, this is salvation. Wrong. How do you overcome? You have to acknowledge Christ as king. You have to acknowledge his preeminence his supremacy over all. You have to realize that you have the mind of Christ. Set your mind on things above, not on these things that we can see, but on the things of spirituality. You need to focus on the service of others, submitting yourself to one another. You have to focus on worship and prayer. That's what Paul says here. That's how he, he admonished the Colossians. The last one's complacency. I'm going to go to Ephesians 5. Uh, also Revelation, just to kind of connect the two. <clears throat> Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children 
and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. There's some more false teaching. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you, you were darkness, but now you are the light in the world, in the Lord. Sorry, Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, the Ephesians, which we read in Revelation, became complacent in their faith. What John writes in Revelation to the, the church in Ephesus is, to the, this is chapter 2, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, good things, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. So they're doing something that Paul told them to. But have tested those who call themselves apostles, apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, false prophets, false teachers, which I also hate. He also, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's the best part. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Complacency says, it's okay if I sit still. I'm still on the path. This is a loss of love for Jesus. This is a stopping of your sanctification, a resting on your laurels. Sustained disobedience in one area of your life is going to lead to disobedience in other areas. It gives room for sin and it's a slow descent into Christian carnality. Sin begets more sin, and like I quoted earlier, it's crouching at the door. It's going to try to master you. 
in the image of the prison cell, you're choosing to return to the same prison cell. You're just going to sit and wait, content in your sin. How do you overcome? Galatians 6, 9-10 says, Let us grow, not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us uh, opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul says to remember, I'm sorry, John says in Revelation to remember where you, from where you have fallen. We need to spur ourselves and one another to good works. That's what Hebrews 10.25 says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Paul also says that we need to submit to one another, bearing each other's burdens, and again he calls us to worship and prayer. I'm going to wrap up now. Where do we go from here? This, this teaching is open-ended. I, I struggled with trying to get an idea of how to even conclude it. Paul doesn't conclude it here in, in chapter 3. He writes 13 more chapters after that on the conclusion of all of this. And, and over the coming months, Landon will undoubtedly help us to see that. But So this is open-ended for the time being, but there's three things that if you spend any amount of time with me in, in, in fellowship, you will know the three things I always mention to people um, as encouragement that, that we have to do that are disciplines of, of believers who are, are being sanctified. The first is to remain in fellowship. We have to be with one another. The Spirit works mightily in the body of Christ. The next is to remain in prayer. It's easy to get complacent in prayer. But if we're not in prayer, we're not communing with the Lord. And we have to remain in the word. If you're not being fed daily by it in one way or another, even just having a conversation in fellowship about God's word, you're going to fall away. You're going to become complacent. You're going to allow false teaching to come in because you're not being reminded of, of what truth is. All this is defined as abiding. I'm going to leave you with a challenge by way of Alexander the Great. There was a soldier in his army that was also named Alexander. And I don't know the whole story, but apparently this guy wasn't living up to what the Great thought he should. And Alexander approached him one day and said, Either lay aside my name or else do valiant acts. He called this young soldier to live the same life he was living. If we are calling ourselves Christians, we need to do valiant acts. The same acts that Christ did. Not in the way of works by the flesh, but in his spirit. The challenge comes as a way of self-examination for each of us. Have we fallen into legalistic thinking and behavior? Corinthians teaches us that we need to examine our hearts, re-examine them every day. And if we have fallen into legalistic behavior and thinking, we need to reassert the concerns of the Holy Spirit 
in our lives. The indwelling, the searching, the teaching, the maturity. Have we fallen under the sway of false teachers? It's easy to do. There's lots of them out there. The word, the word warns us about that, especially in these last days. And if we have, we need to reassert Christ and Christ alone as king of each of our lives. Have you sat down the path of sanctification? Have you said, I've reached a good point. I'm holy enough. If you have, you need to reassert the love of Jesus into your life. You need to remind yourself from where you have fallen and bring yourself back. Allow him to bring you back to that point that you have realized his love for you and your love for him. There's only one other option. Lay down the name of Jesus and walk away. I'll leave you with this. As Elijah said to Israel as he faced off against the prophets of Baal, he addressed them and he said, How long will you go limping between different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. That was a challenge to all of Israel. And we know what happened in that story, don't we? Who rained fire from heaven? God did. The prophets of Baal, nothing. So brothers, sisters, examine yourselves for any amount of, of complacency, of false teaching, of legalism in your, in your lives, and root it out. Paul called a very carnal church in Corinth to do these things, and I'm asking you to do them here in Kakana, in Appleton, in Wisconsin. We're called to the same purpose. We have the mind of Christ, so we should act like it. Father, thank you for time. Thank you for lots of time. <laughs> and um, I just ask that... Um, that your word resounds in each of our hearts, each of our minds, that we're able to uh, take them seriously, that we uh, do not treat this as something trivial or frivolous, but that we treat them with the utmost respect, that you have revealed yourself to us, and that you are not to be made a triviality, but you are to be treated as holy, as the God of the universe. You've called us into a greater life, one that's higher than anything a natural man can be. So I just ask that you allow each of us to be sensitive to your spirit and to walk accordingly. And just to honor you in all that we do, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, teaching us. And we thank you for your son who died for us and rose again that we might have power over the sin in our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.